0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by Steph Boyer and Barry Kasson. How are you both?
1: Hey, Danny. (laughs) I have missed that. (laughs) Happy New Year.
0: I, I don't know when like the last date that you can say Happy New Year to someone is, but uh, <laughs> February February is definitely pushing it. Um, it's uh, it's actually
2: sense. not from this last New Year, it's for the next one.
0: <laughs> so it's an early Happy New Year.
2: It's an early Happy New Year.
0: All right. <laughs> and so let me uh, introduce our uh, our presenter for this week. We are very pleased to have Natanya Rusik, who is the current RCH Chief Medical Resident. Natanya, how are you?
3: I'm doing well, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm also doing well. Uh, we're really excited about the case that you have for us. Um, so maybe I will I will turn it over to you. I'll be quiet and you can get us going here. How
1: do you know that we're already excited about the case?
3: Yeah, how do uh, you know?
0: I, that was a royal we. Uh, everyone uh. in this room here in my home is excited. I don't know <laughs> about
1: not Steph is I unexcited. Would, I wouldn't be in the habit of just speaking for me like that, Danny, but um, I think I can... <laughs> I can assume it's going to be a good case, but I haven't decided yet. So right.
0: You're, you're, you're watch yourself right.
1: there Danny. You're right. That was rude.
0: Uh, next New Year's resolution is to not speak <laughs> your step, but that <laughs> kicks in 2024.
3: Uh-huh.
0: All right. Let's hear uh-huh. All it. Right. All right. Go for it, Natanya.
3: All right. Uh, so our patient today is a 74-year-old woman who presented to hospital for shortness of breath. Her past medical history includes... Mild idiopathic bronchiectasis, for which she's just on some puffers, BID. Small lymphocytic lymphoma, which is stage 3A, and she has no lymph lymph nodes above and below the diaphragm. It was confirmed on biopsy back in 2011, and an interval CT was actually stable in summer of 2022. She also has a diagnosis of possible Sjogren's syndrome that's really just managed with supportive care. She had a prior positive ANA, negative RF, and negative CCP. She has hyperlipidemia. She's not on treatment because she didn't tolerate the medications. She has hypothyroidism on levothyroxine. She had a prior episode of palpitations and had a Holter. She had a run of NSVT, but no AFib. She was started on bisoprolol for management, And then she also has GERD, for which she's on a PPI. Her social history includes that she lives on Vancouver Island with her husband. She's retired. She used to work at a bank. She's a lifelong non-smoker. no alcohol or drug use. So her story goes that she was well at her baseline, but about three months before she came to the hospital, she started developing dyspnea and exertion. On review of systems, she endorsed fatigue, weakness, orthopnea, and edema, but didn't have any PND, chest pain, or palpitations. She didn't have any recent infections or infectious symptoms, no upper or lower respiratory tract symptoms. She didn't really find any relief when she used her inhaler. She saw her respirologist, whom she follows with for her bronchiectasis, and they got a CT scan in early August, which showed nonspecific mosaic attenuation and ground glass throughout the lungs bilaterally. There were no pleural effusions or masses. There were multiple ovoid hypoattenuating strictures throughout the thyroid gland. There were multiple small mediastinal lymph nodes. They were not enlarged by size criteria, but they were a bit bulkier than the prior study. She had a few other lymph nodes that were all stable from prior. So the scan was reviewed by her respirologist as an outpatient, and She was started on a course of oral doxycycline for possible pneumonia, but her symptoms got worse and she came to the hospital three days later. On exam, she was hemodynamically stable and afebrile. There was a nodum, some crackles and the chest x-ray showed interstitial markings and vascular redistribution in keeping with congestive heart failure. On her lab, she had a white blood sound count of 13.1 with a neutrophils predominant on the differential. Her creatinine was 172. She actually had baseline labs a few weeks prior with a baseline creatinine of 90. Her troponin was 63, and her NT-propion was 54,000. She was brought into the hospital, started on IV Lasix, and continued on the antibiotics. After a few days, her creatinine hadn't budged, but her respiratory symptoms had improved. And she was seen by the Internal Medicine Consulting Service, who focused her, found her IVC to be collapsible. They thought maybe she was a bit over and nephrology weighed in and said the same, thought maybe there was an ATN. So she got some gentle fluids. But despite this, her creatinine continued to climb from the 200s to the, 200s to the low 300s. I think I'll pause there and see what everybody's thinking.
0: Whoa. Whoa. Woof. <laughs> woof, woof indeed. All right. That's a lot, a lot going on.
2: Can I, um, you, I'm sorry. Can you just repeat the, the, the hematology?
3: Yeah, the hematology, her uh, CBC showed a white blood cell count of 13.1, and the differential showed predominant neutrophils.
2: And the hemoglobin?
3: Uh, oh, her hemoglobin was normal, and the platelets were also normal.
2: Okay, thank you. Did we get a
0: urinalysis with that? I didn't I didn't catch that.
3: Uh, I did not say the urinalysis, but I do have it from when she came in. Um, so her urinalysis showed uh, hematuria, which was 2+, um, and then there were no red blood cells per high-powered field, and... Then there was a repeat one, which did show maybe three or four red blood cells. There were no leukocytes. Um, and then they noted some granular, coarse-grained urate crystals.
0: No protein,
2: though?
3: No protein.
2: I'm sorry, you said hematurium, but no red
3: cells? There were some red cells. It was intermittent. Only a few on some of the urinalyses. Some of them were negative. Yeah.
0: Okay. And, and just, just following up on that, her CK was normal?
3: uh ck i actually don't know if ck was done at that time i don't remember seeing okay. one yeah
0: no problem yeah yeah just saying like, like we, we had this in yeah. another case that we presented here where someone mm-hmm. had demonstrable like quote-unquote hematuria right like dipped positive but no rbc is on uh, microscopy so we, we just want to make sure this isn't like myoglobin um but uh we we can circle back to that um what are some like kind of opening thoughts uh from the team here maybe steph can i start with you
1: Yeah. um, So, you know, I think obviously there's a lot like there's a a lot of different issues going on. And I think we're going to be better served than not to have a good problem list. And even sort of trying to define or prioritize those problems is tricky. So the initial problem that we heard about was dyspnea on exertion. But now it sounds like the acute kidney injury has kind of taken precedent, it's it's become a priority because it's that's really bad and that could kill her um, or or severely sort of change the course of her life. So um, I think the acute kidney injury is probably on the top of my list right now. And it sounds like the team at that time and me right now, we have no idea what's causing it because presumably the first thought was that this was cardiorenal and then they diuresed the you know what out of her and then she's dry and my guess is neither of those things is true she's both not dry and she's not overloaded Um, she's got an intrinsic renal problem probably and so that's the I think the acute kidney injury is my first thing and then the shortness of breath on exertion it's also interesting because um, this lady has a history of bronchiectasis and one might reasonably have said like this is sort of a flare up of her bronchiectasis or she's got a super infection or something, and that's I guess what a respirologist initially thought. Those findings on the CT to me did not suggest pneumonia. They suggested, like, you know, maybe a new interstitial lung problem, but what do I know? So that's that's kind of a there's this sort of more subacute or chronic shortness of breath brewing over three months. And then there's this thing about a BNP of fifty four thousand in a lady who really did not complain of cardinal symptoms of congestive heart failure and so i'm gonna like throw the bnp under that uh, that label item of shortness of breath but i'm actually not sure like i'm not sure that we have one cause of shortness of breath here and then kind of not like uh, things that i'm putting in my like mental parking lot include her uh lymphoma leukemia thing and the sjogren's because I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to turn out to be relevant. Sjogren's is one of these, like, obviously you know this way better than I do, Danny. It's one of these, like, really complicated problems that can affect, like, every organ in the body. And so I don't know if that's related to this lung condition or to her new renal problem. And I'm, like, the first, you know, few hours that I meet this lady, I'm reading about that probably. The, The lymphoma leukemia thing, I don't know, like... She has no cytopenias. She doesn't even have lymphocytosis. Her chest adenopathy seems stable. And so I'm guessing that's not going to turn out to be a big player here, but I don't know. So I'm kind of parking it. Yeah. Uh, those are kind of my initial thoughts.
0: No, that, that's, uh, that's important organization for how we're going to be kind of working through the case. Uh, Barry, what kind of strikes you?
2: Yeah. I, you know, I think that her symptoms are pulmonary and uh, with her background, I found it really interesting that the diagnosis of a a pneumonia and the use of doxycycline to treat the pneumonia was kind of the first issue following the CT scan. The CT scan has a lot of different interpretations that are possible given her background with her lymphoma and her potential Sjogren's. And the one thing I would say is that it seemed the least supported was an infection Uh, causing these changes and causing her three months of progressive dyspnea. So I would look at those and there's a variety of different components. I agree with uh, Stefan. I think the more difficult component to uh, account for is the BNP. I mean, you can manipulate all the others to to, uh, put one in front of the other. You can combine the kidney and the lung problems. But the BNP seems to be Separate. Now, whether this represents some myopathy, some cardiomyopathy that isn't actually causing heart failure, I don't know. And so at this point, to me, that's, that's the biggest question I think I would support what Steph was saying. And now she's got... So she had subacute pulmonary symptoms, and now she's got more acute uh, laboratory problems related to her renal function, which seems not to be the big player. So those are those i would put it in that category in those categories and approach it from that point of view hmm
0: you know I, I think it's been a little while since i've i've uh, gotten to record one of these podcasts with you guys and t- as as time ticks on I get increasingly crappy at general internal and so it's always nice to be brought back and reminded about how how the two of you kind of approach these problems and that, that that's all really interesting you know i I think I always, my ears always perk up when I hear a rheumatology problem. Um, we always hope that not every single case that we have on the show is a rheumatology case. But, you know, Sjogren's, like Steph pointed out, like, ah, it can kind of have its finger in everything or nothing. You know, the most common version of Sjogren's that we end up seeing is sica, right? Ocular, oral, um, sometimes vaginal sicca or dryness. And that's a really disturbing symptom but it is not on its own a sinister disease typically. The, the thing that we, you know, when, when I see consults for people with for query Sjogren's right. where really, truly, when we ask a zillion questions, the only problem they're having is dryness. That is treated exactly the same as someone who doesn't have Sjogren's. Hmm. And, and kind of the education piece for, for those patients is the, the true importance of knowing whether you have Sjogren's dryness or non-Sjogren's dryness, is about kind of the company that Sjogren's keeps. So there's a substantially higher risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There's risk of cryoglobulinemia and hypergammaglobulinemia and, and PEP abnormalities. So it, it does come with this hematologic flavor, in addition to the possibility that your Sjogren's evolves into kind of multi-system, more sinister version of the disease. And so I think when, like, when I hear this case, you know, the first, I think if I saw this person emerge, I'd be like, well, they have bronchiectasis and they're coming in and they're short of breath and, you know, they don't feel good. Maybe they had like pneumonia that tipped off some heart failure and like, oh, that's it. It's like easy, easy peasy. But I think that looking at it through the lens of that medical history, we have to step back and be a little bit more cautious about jumping to those. Con- those kind of statistical conclusions of like, well, the most common thing coming in through the emerge is going to be pneumonia, heart failure, da da da. And I, I find that the language of saying like mosaic attenuation on the CT, I find that interesting because I don't actually see that in reports with high frequency. So that is something that I would kind of maybe call in or pop by radiology and ask for a little bit more explanation of what you mean there. Because They're not using the usual stuff that I hear when I'm thinking of like, oh, inflammatory lung disease or, you know, interstitial lung disease. Usually when there's interstitial lung disease, they say interstitial lung disease. And that's not what they're saying here. So, you know, what's on the differential for mosaic attenuation? I'd need to kind of look deeper into that. So, and and then you're right, top of the list is solving this AKI. It really matters. And uh, just keeping the Sjogren's in mind, we've we've done this dance before, right? Trying to figure out like <laughs> uh, the various renal manifestations of Sjogren's. So those are those
1: are my thoughts.
0: So, so what
1: wants to know is like, is what are we gonna do here? And I know, I know you want to know that, Natanya. We're getting to it. Getting to it. We got to. <laughs> no
0: pressure, us, Natanya. Oh my god,
3: <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. This is so stop, interesting to stop, listen to you in stop, real time, actually discussing that. it instead of in my in my phone when I'm biking to work.
1: <laughs> Just stop hounding us. Um,
3: <laughs>
1: so I think you know, with respect to the acute kidney injury, I think I'm doing the usual stuff. So I think this question of getting a CK, I would do that. Like that's part of my usual acute kidney injury assessment anyway. Um, I'd get a calcium level because I do that for everyone that comes in with an acute kidney injury. I expect that to be normal. And it sounds really acute. Um, I think there's this like history of recent doxycycline. And I guess I wonder if AIN is on the differential, I would get an ultrasound of the kidneys I guess if, I don't know if that CT was done with contrast, I guess it could be a contrast injury and then we're getting like urine microscopy and, and so on. And then with the CT findings, I I think, you know, now, yeah, I think Danny's right. I think we should go talk to radiology and get like an actual radiological consultation. And with the BNP, I think we have to go look at the heart, you know, like in some kind of formal way. And then also just think of the list of things that cause a rise in BNP that are not uh, congestive heart failure. So, because she's not really, I mean, she's got some shortness of breath, but she's not swollen and she's not, she's maybe a little crackly, but not complaining of orthopnea. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure if this is necessarily CHF. So it's a pretty high number and it needs to be reconciled, but I'd want to make sure that we're not just sort of, uh, Believably calling this decompensated CHF when clinically she doesn't have that.
2: Uh, it's interesting that uh, what I would do is I would do more history, get more history, and do a physical exam before I decided to do anything else. Old um, school. Yeah, it is old school. Um, but <laughs> I think that I, I, I think that we're informed. One of the issues is that we're following symptoms in laboratory. That may be related, but there may be something on physical examination that's very, very helpful in deciding on which organ system we pursue first. I mean, if her O2 sat is 85%, that's a big indication. What I would do first, if her O2 sat was 95% on room air, that'd be something different. So it's it sounds it is old school, but I am old school. So
1: I was teasing. I was teasing.
2: Well, that's fine. I don't mind. I, I, I don't mind representing that part of the school that's old school. No,
1: I'm, I'm kidding. I, I'm old school now because you're old school.
2: <laughs> but that's well, what I would do.
0: So, so maybe if we can turn things at this point back over to Dr. Resick. What did you folks find on, on examination? And maybe you fill us so in those investigations.
3: Absolutely. I did not have the pleasure of taking care of her until later in her hospital course. So I was going off of what was available from her chart review at this time. So what I can tell you is that she was on room air throughout the beginning of this hospital admission. And I basically told you everything that I know about her physical exam from the time, um, which I know isn't what you were hoping to hear, Dr. Kasson. <laughs> um, no, no, no.
2: I, I wasn't hoping to hear anything. Yeah. I, I just didn't know something, her O2 stats. Right? Yeah.
3: Yeah. No, she was on room air. Um, but the rest of the workup uh, that has been uh, mentioned, her CK was normal. Calcium was normal. Um, her urinalysis I mentioned, and then she had just the red blood cells on microscopy. And there were no uh, white blood cells uh, seen on microscopy. She did have a very mildly elevated urine ACR, though, on twelve at 12.9. Her abdominal ultrasound showed retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy in keeping with her known SLL as well as mild splenomegaly, There was no ascites, no hydronephrosis in the kidneys appeared within normal limits. And then she had an echo. Unfortunately, from this time in her hospital stay, I don't have access to the full report, um, but it said uh, from the notes from those taking care of her that she had severe increase in LV volume with mild moderate LV systolic impairment at 40%. There was no significant valvular disease, and there was normal RV systolic function.
2: Can you mention her blood pressure? Sorry, I missed that. If you if you'd have told us already,
3: it was always normal around this time. Yeah, she was okay. always Thank hemodynamically you. stable one twenties, one thirties.
0: Okay, so you said dilated LV, and I, I guess if I may, can we just add on like urine electrolytes and such for for RTA?
3: Ooh, I actually don't know that. There were urine electrolytes done at this time. I did not oh, write them down.
0: No problem. Maybe, maybe later. Maybe it's not important. Definitely like a next line test behind all the actual good medical stuff <laughs> that Steph suggested. All right. What, what do you guys make of those findings so far?
1: I mean, honestly, the initial story that you told of sort of like reflexively saying, "Um, you know, this lady comes in. She's not feeling well. She's got bronchiectasis. I give her antibiotics." and then all this other stuff ensues, that might not be wrong. Like, could it just be as simple as this lady has bronchiectasis? She's got a super infection. She gets antibiotics. She develops AIN. And as part of her kind of like mild sort of sepsis syndrome, develops a bit of CHF. Like, is that, I don't know
2: no you've solved not the, so, you
0: no. Not,
1: not so obviously that's not the right answer here but
0: like it actually steph it is and that's the end of the episode thanks everyone for listening to
1: <laughs> no but you know that's well, that's, I, not, I, that's yeah. not that crazy to to think that like I, it would take me a little bit more work to be satisfied that that's actually what happened here but that's not mm-hmm. a totally
2: wacky story right. i agree with you right. i think that you know she's got three months of a uh, history we bring her into the hospital with and give her an some intervention. The only intervention, I guess, is the antibiotic. And I guess w- she was diarrhea That's the other thing that she was happened. And suddenly, her laboratory parameters for her renal function start to spiral. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you know, to to that end, like just doing the simple things of just like, did this even seem like an infection when she came in? So she has a slightly elevated white count. As far as I heard, there was no fever. And did she have an elevated CRP even? I know that's not going to differentiate cause, but like even just for flavor of, does she have an inflammatory disorder going on? Do you recall,
1: or a procalcitonin. Do you, do you, this this could be a good, sure. good situation where you'd use a procalcitonin. Yeah, good thought. Did we have any of those things?
3: I actually don't have them. Okay. I think they're great thoughts. Thank you. <laughs>
0: um, but, you know, just to round out like our, even just our, Like, does it kind of fit the classic clinical picture of like infection, not infection? And if it's not infection, then um, it's a a bit of a weirder story. Okay. And and the other thing that we were going to chase down was to kind of go bother the radiologist and get a little bit more explanation of what they meant or what they were hinting at with mosaic attenuation. Um, Can we get a bit more clarity on that? Or does that come maybe, maybe later?
3: So at this time, what I can tell you is that there wasn't any further discussion that was noted with um, radiology or discussion with respirology. She did get a repeat CT later, but that is farther down the line because I, people were I, curious about the same thing yeah but yeah. I guess what
2: I, I would say is just just what you're saying, Danny, is that you know this here's a lady that we've brought into hospital for one reason we now see another problem. Um, I think what what we, need to decide is the rapidity of her renal dysfunction and therefore which of those would take priority to investigate first given the fact that we're not getting closer to a differential uh, than the differential we've always already proposed i mean we could propose things like sarcoid or we could propose other infiltrative processes but we don't have any evidence to say that she has yet another disease happening okay um, yeah,
1: uh, Sorry, could I just interrupt for one second? So, one thing that I was going to say at the at the beginning, which I forgot to say, um, is this lady seems pretty unlucky. You know, like, she has, how many people do you know who have unexplained, like, this bronchiectasis was specifically called idiopathic. Like, she's got no good explanation for it. She's got no known history of, you know, deficiency or recurrent infections or whatever. She's got small cell lymphoma and she's got Sjogren's how many people do you know who have all three of those things like so so one thing that I would be asking myself is as like I just put throw those words into google you know yeah yeah and see if google says oh this is you know uh syndrome and then we then we're off to the races
2: yeah so whether (laughs) she has light chain disease whether she advanced from these if if she's evolved I mean I think that all of these are important but are we're limited at still in the the only other I I don't I guess I was going to say more history but I, I still think we're my concern is that we're going to start to go in, not we but we go in different directions without actually seeing which which direction is the most urgent for us to proceed in
0: yeah I think um, I right. think that like a little bit of that piece is like when I w- when I would be doing this history and I would see like oh idiopathic bronchiectasis I'd be like huh like uh, wouldn't like uh, geez like I'm a little embarrassed. I don't like really know a ton about that. I'm going to do like a little bit of reading about that just to like make sure I don't look like a chump in front of this patient. And, and then I'd be like, okay, well, like, is that an adequate, like, does that make sense? Or is that like a massive coincidence? Um, she has these other listed disease that could themselves come with their own lung disease and just make sure like, okay, well, like, I don't really know a ton about, you know, the SLL. But maybe a little bit more about Sjogren's, like that happens to have its own pretty specific lung disease. Like maybe I will just make sure that she's had a really good CT, you know, an, an mm-hmm. ILD protocol CT in the past or that she's seen an ILD or respiralogist respirologist or good internist that I'm like, I'm confident that this is the right label for stuff. Because, you know, even the fact that she carries a diagnosis of Sjogren's, that too requires interrogation because... These are, easy, these are easy terms to apply, but like they can be nonspecific and like nailing down that, that past medical history is something I'm I'm focusing more on now, not less in like my, my personal practice, because I, I'm like skeptical about everything that's ever written mm-hmm. down. And that sometimes you go through and you're like, huh, that's actually, you know, oh, it this, you know, query bronchiect- bronchiectasis thing. It wasn't idiopathic. It was query. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, that is a really mm-hmm. big difference and a tiny word change. Mm-hmm. And um so so yeah, I, I I find I agree with you. There's like a suspiciousness to the unluckiness that's going on. One other but little thing is a, uh, sorry, that um,
1: you know, Barry's saying, like, let's make sure we prioritize the the most important thing first. I think just as a practical point to anyone who's like, uh what this is for anyone, I, I guess, but especially for learners, if you're charting in your patients' charts in the hospital, I would be in the this is getting increasingly hard with the sort of uh, electronic record that has become our, our master and overlord, but it's important to actually prioritize your issues. Like when you go into the impression and plan part of your note or in your documentation, put the most important issue first. It, it, it is, I, I think it is a nudge to yourself to put the most thought into that issue. And And here I think In my own opinion, at least based on what I know about this case, I would be putting acute kidney injury as the first issue. When she was admitted to the hospital, I would have put shortness of breath. But once these problems begin to resolve or begin to evolve, I would be putting the acute kidney injury first. And I think that's an important sort of um, mental cue.
2: So I wouldn't, and I'll tell you what I, so if things unfolded the way they, we thought at the beginning, this is the lady that's had progressive shortness of breath. She's evaluated by CT scan. It's a non-specific, these are non-specific findings. We do investigations which show an elevation in her troponin and a massive elevation in her BNP, which usually would suggest that this is uh, a compromised uh, cardiac function. We do an echo which supports a compromised cardiac function. And yet we don't have an explanation because we're told that the IBC is collapsible by POCUS. So, so we're relying entirely on one test to dismiss our initial investigations and our support for those investigations with a test that is probably as reliable as the in, and interpreted uh, as the person that's administering the test. So I recognize the dysfunction, but here we've got a patient that we diuresed initially, or we treated with antibiotics, then we diuresed, then we saw the IBC collapse, and then we gave fluids to.
0: I so, guess we actually never rounded out that history. Like, Natanya, did her symptoms get better when we diuresed her? Like, did her shortness of breath improve or it was like just the same?
3: They did. Yeah, her symptoms did get better. And the team actually had a lot of discussion, it seems, back and forth about just this point. And she ended up getting diuresed and then got some fluids and then got some albumin and got some more Lasix and went back to the fluids. You know, this back and forth that we often do with these people.
0: I know it well. I know it well. <laughs> um, as a as an or as a resident, I I, I I know this story. Okay, so all right, um, can we are, are we ready to turn back over? So I think we know we've kind of said uh, kind of what we would do as our next step.
2: Can I just um, make one other comment though? In the entertained diagnosis that we have. Can we account, aside from sepsis, can we account for her decrease, her ejection fraction being 40% given all the potential issues other than infection that we have uh, to date? That's a question for us. It's rhetorical on my part, sorry.
1: No, uh,
0: no I don't think, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we have an, an answer yet. I think it's as mysterious as every, you know, cardiomyopathy coming into hospital without a known explanation yet. Could she have had an MI three months ago? I don't know. I I guess we're going to let's keep uh, let's keep working through the case and see kind of where where things lead. She's about to deteriorate.
3: (laughs) So I'll tell you that the team who was taking care of her also was uh, fairly unsure about what was going on. Um, So around this time, they did some digging. I'll start through her chart looking into this diagnosis of the bronchiectasis. Um, she had had PFTs a little while before coming in that showed a normal FEV to FE- FEC ratio, but the FEV1 was 0.77. And they actually found a high-resolution CT and ILD protocol that was done, I think, a year before she came in um, that showed a minimal bilateral low predominant bronchial dilation that was stable from the prior scan from 2016. And there was very subtle peripheral ground glass opacity in both of the uh, lower lobes and mild, smooth interlobular septal thickening. Uh, But there was no pathologic air trapping and no pulmonary opacification or suspicious lesion. Um, And it's my understanding that around in this time, she was being followed by her respirologist for this diagnosis of bronchiectasis. Because of this exertional component to her symptoms, she actually had a very complete cardiac workup as an outpatient that occurred all within, I would say, the last six to 12 months before she came to this hospital stay. So she had an exercise stress test about a year before. Where she exercised for three minutes, she got to the target heart rate. She had some borderline ST changements and some atypical chest tightness, um, but no high risk features. She had a baseline echo that was also around a year before she came in with a normal LVEF of 60 to 65% with moderate left atrial enlargement um, and a normal right ventricular size. Uh, The RVSP was 30. She also had a prosantine MIBI that was about six months before she came in. Uh, which showed no significant symptoms or ECG changes during the propanol infusion, and no evidence of ischemia or infarction. The post-stress LVEF was forty-seven percent, and then she also had CT calcium scoring, which showed a calcium score of point four. I think I'll pause yeah. there and see if you want to know any more answers to what the other things are that you brought up.
0: <laughs> hey, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here real quick. Can you yeah. tell me good or is that a, a calcium score that's good or bad?
3: My understanding is that it's very low, so it's good.
0: Good, okay,
1: awesome. And the post-stress LVEF of forty-seven percent—what's that? Bad. <laughs> you yeah, said we, she had a we, persantine, maybe with a the post—the yeah. post-stress LVEF of forty-seven percent.
3: Is that after they infuse the persantine? Like, yeah. if they do so, an echo afterwards, yeah.
1: So, why is her so, EF go down to forty-seven percent?
2: Well, it was sixty. Now it's forty. It was forty-seven, and now it's forty.
1: I don't understand that.
0: And, and on her pulmonary function testing, her DLCO was normal? Can't be.
3: That's a great question. Let me double check.
0: Because, like, you know, uh, the, the, the only real thing on my list for mosaic attenuation is infection or, like, thrombotic disease of some kind. So, so, anyways, just looking for clues for, for like, uh, you know, pulmonary vascular disease. But I think that ILD protocol CT is really interesting because... Now, we actually do have ground glass opacities, and that that is different language that actually makes me wonder a little bit about her pulmonary diagnosis. You know,
2: but but we're told she does not have pulmonary hypertension, at uh, least on by he, echo.
0: On her, That's right. On her echo, yeah, on her right. echo, yeah, yeah. And presumably,
2: think, she doesn't have uh, pulmonary embolus or pulmonary thrombotic disease because we would have seen it by con- the contrast that she'd had. I don't, re- I, I was it a CTPE?
3: It was not a CTPE.
2: Ah, oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, I misinterpreted that.
0: Anyway, I mean, it's probably not the cause, but just, just putting it out there is something that, that that's why I'm asking about like the DLCO on past pulmonary function testing. And as Steph said, like it sh- it's probably abnormal if she has some kind of underlying lung disease. And is it disproportionately abnormal? that would be something that would kind of be easy to miss maybe when you're making that initial diagnosis. And um, if the DLCO is like substantially lower than the rest of the abnormalities, maybe.
3: I can only see the general spirometry. I can't see pull, full PFTs for her. So I actually cannot find a DLCO.
1: Hmm. Maybe uh, she's I'm just spirometry.
0: In, yeah. yeah. So I, I want to get, I, I'm interested now in the, the ILD diagnosis and the precision of that. I'm curious if there's more showgrins in this person than we anticipated.
1: NSIP with a connective tissue disease or something?
0: Yeah. But and,
2: the other thing is that Sjogren's... maybe she has, sorry, maybe she has another uh, exogenous cause. I mean, we didn't really get a history. Does she have, um, where does she live? What's she, what are her exposures to her pulmonary component? Is that something that we know about?
3: Yeah, she moved to Vancouver Island originally um was I believe born and raised in Ontario and then moved to Vancouver Island a few years before um this came all these symptoms came to light and she never had any interesting occupational exposures or interesting travel history no TB risk factors that I'm aware of. She was seen in the outpatient uh, respirology clinic and I actually believe it was their bronchiectasis clinic. And the diagnosis was in keeping with mild idiopathic bronchiectasis with the information they had available. And she was basically um, just followed up longitudinally, just symptom mm-hmm. management. So remind so, us so, how yeah, long you
2: know. before, how long was her bron- the, the diagnosis?
3: The first mention that I can see about it is about a year or two before Oh, I'm sorry. No, it was about four or five years before she came in to hospital.
0: Okay. So, um, so just to just to round out this thought, um, Sjogren's is specifically associated with a trickier ILD called lymphocytic interstitial pneumonitis or pneumonia, like LIP. And if I recall correctly, one, it is associated with ground glass changes, but also interlobular septal thickening, and it can it has a cystic pattern to it which I think you could like conceivably one could misinterpret, you know, dilated peripheral bronchioles for like tiny cysts. So I'm a little suspicious of the description that you gave. I'm definitely not a respirologist. So I I do put trust in them. But I'm going to reserve 5% uncertainty about the underlying lung disease. Even though that's not really why this person is admitted to a hospital. I get, I get that.
1: And this, this that, city lives on Vancouver Island?
2: That's right. Hmm. It, where like in Vancouver big, Island? This
1: big cryptococcus gadii yeah. sort of thing. I, I don't know. Just <laughs> It's probably unrelated, but I don't know. When I hear it's like, you know, uh, so-and-so's uh, driving through Death Valley with a convertible, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> on an exam question. This is like, eh, you have a weird lung thing that nobody understands and you're from Vancouver Island. And 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 it's the diet of Vancouver Island and this lady is—I think of this lady as not immune competent, you know, like right. So, and like sidebar stuff. Like,
0: what's the answer to that uh, driving through Death Valley case?
1: Um, it's called Valley Fever, right? And it's it's <laughs> is it, what is the what is the organism? Yeah, Coxidio. coccidio Coccidium mycosis. There you go. That's so great. It's,
3: it's the Royal College studying in me.
1: me oh right? wow. That's
2: so yeah, funny. we a real college studying in me, too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so... Well,
3: should I tell you what happened next? I would love yeah. to hear
0: what happened next, please.
3: So the team was all scratching their heads. So they um, sent some workup for intrarenal causes of her AKI. So she had an SPEP which showed polyclonal hypergamma globulinemia. UPEP showed mild non-selective proteinuria, primarily composed of albumin with no monoclonal bands. She had k- kappa-free light chains, which were 239, lambda was 123, and her kappa-lambda ratio is 1.94. She also had um, which is an elevated,
2: correct? 1.94? Yeah, but sorry, very 40. mildly so. Yeah, mildly yeah, elevated. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, she also had a full immunological panel in light of her history of Sjogren's and the intrarenal um, kidney injury that they were suspecting. So she had an ANA that was greater than 1 to 640, she had negative double-stranded DNA, negative ANCAS, negative anti-GBM. C4 was normal. C3 was reduced, but very modestly so. I was 0.8, and the lower limit of normal on this assay was 0.81. Her SSA was positive. SSB was negative. SCL70 negative. Negative Smith and RNP antibodies. Rheumatoid factor was very high at 680 And there was a note that she had previously had a negative rheumatoid factor of 7.3 as an outpatient before, and cryos were negative. Um, I'll also tell you just now, because this is when this happened, they were kind of scratching their head about this small lymphocytic lymphoma. So they actually gave a call to BC Cancer and spoke to her cancer doctor, Um, and they basically felt that the renal failure and heart failure were suspected to be unrelated to lymphoma because it's a very slowly progressive disease, her type. And particularly for the heart failure, SLL would be associated with a dilated cardiomyopathy, and it would be quite unusual in a patient without amyloidosis. The elevated free light chains were suspected to be inflammatory in the setting of decreased renal filtration.
1: What do you think of that out-of-control rheumatoid factor with normal complements, Danny? I think
0: that is really suspicious. Like it, you got know, a, it got like, an
1: actual sort of physical noise out of you. It's like someone had squeezed yeah. you or something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, OK, when, so like I think that an incredibly high rheumatoid factor should, especially in someone who has Sjogren's, should definitely make you think about cryos, which obviously like the team did. If the cryos, if you have kind of a mixed cryo that is actually activating complement, you really should see a low C3 or C4 um, or both. And we're seeing a marginally low C3 so you know that that isn't a perfect story but just because the cryos are negative doesn't mean this person doesn't have cryos so i would send them again because there's this person has bad renal like their renal disease is worsening and the test is notoriously hard to send so you know to build in a little bit of security that this person truly doesn't have a cryo even though they have this hypergammaglobulinemia. globulinemia and they have all sorts of B cells that are pumping out all sorts of, you know, immune, like uh, immunoglobulins. One other thing that it, I wonder about is, you know, if this person has SLL, which is a lymphoma, and I, 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 I suspect that that is capable of producing a cryo by itself, that would be a monoclonal type of cryo, which is unlikely but not impossible to cause, cause a positive rheumatoid factor. So I, I think like that piece, like I really do want to know if this person has a cryo or not. And so I would I would send it again um to look for that. And so now, I, I don't disagree,
2: Danny, okay. but I think that so you know, we could we're focused on the Sjogren's and certainly your ANA is strongly positive. Her rheumatoid factors just become positive. Well, it was negative before. I don't know if it's just become positive. But given given the possibility that this represents an immune complex. I would look for immune complexes, cryo is one, but I, but other immune complexes and the, the relatable antigens for this would be bacteria or tumor cells. And I would, since one of the issues is this slow growing progressive disease, I would think of things and suggestive of an underlying infection. At this point, although I didn't support this before, I would say, this becomes higher on my list, and although she doesn't have other, other findings that would suggest endocarditis or endovascular disease, that would be my focus at this point.
0: I, I think that that's very reasonable, right? A high rheumatoid factor could absolutely be because of infection. That is true. Typically more of like a chronic, consistent infection. So that, that's a good thought too.
3: The team shared your thoughts, and they sent kind of the usual infectious workup, including blood, and urine cultures, which were both negative. Hepatitis B serology showed that she was immune by vaccination. Hep C, syphilis, and HIV were all negative. She also had Lyme serology, which was negative, and Igro was negative, and H. pylori stool antigen was negative. I believe that's all the infectious testing, and there was no vegetation on her initial echo.
0: Is anyone at this day, I mean, we always come to it at some point in, in the cast, as we call it. Is anyone thinking about tissue? Like, we haven't really solved it, but it's important. Does she require a renal biopsy? Does she require a bronch at this stage? Um, her breathing seems to be reasonably stable, so she could probably tolerate it. Is is that indicated now or is that too early to, to start asking that question?
2: Just from my point of view, I, I think I would be I'd pursue before I my, my concern would be we'd end up with uh, information that would not yield us a specific diagnosis, but lead us into the same differential or maybe add uh, or eliminate one or two things. So, I think mm-hmm. given her situation, I'd continue to pursue the possibility. Uh, at this point, what I would do, given the information that we have, is I would focus more on her heart and uh, endovascular, and I would probably do uh, a TEE or a CT dedicated to looking at her. Part for the possibility of uh, a morantic or infective endocarditis.
1: Oh, you, Steph. What are you thinking?
0: Where's your head at?
1: Mm, I think the same. I mean, I, I, would. I didn't hear that fungal blood cultures were done. I mean, those, they, they take a long time, and I, I do that too. Um, mm-hmm. I thought about tissue early on. Like, um, I, you know, I, she's probably days and days into this admission by now. I'm not sure what's happening with her renal function. If it's tanking, then yeah, at some point someone's gonna want to biopsy her kidney.
0: And uh you know, the, the spectre of amyloid was raised. Do you two think that fits here at this stage with the data we have? Is that a convincing story for amyloid?
1: Not for me, no. Like again, I I mean, how much amyloid have I seen? I have not seen that much, but to me this is like an insidious problem. And we know that like less than a year ago this lady had a normal heart and normal kidneys so why she would have amyloid now i don't know that that sounds weird to me
2: so i I think what i i would do is i agree with both of you i don't think i thought of amyloid initially i don't think that's the issue but i wondered if we could do some non-invasive testing for so we're looking at blood cultures and urine cultures but what about galacto
1: menin yeah
2: for Looking stores. at an indirect way to suggest because a fungal systemic disease that would involve the lungs, giving a subacute picture involving the heart and involving the kidneys, still remains a possibility. Now, whether this is yeah. related to her Vancouver Island fungus exposure or not, I don't know. But that would be certainly something I would consider.
0: Okay, maybe back to Natanya So, okay, where did where did things go from here?
3: So the team shared all of your same concerns. So she got a cardiac MRI, actually, which showed a dilated left ventricle with global hypokinesis. Her EF was 38%, similar to the other testing. There was no evidence of ischemic or non-ischemic fibrosis. And then she had no increased T2 signal or late gadolinium enhancement, which would be findings for amyloid. And then she also did get a calcium pyrophosphate scan, which did not show findings suggestive of transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. She also had a lot of discussions around this time about when a renal biopsy should be pursued. Um, and I don't know if I should turn that back to you, but she's still on Vancouver Island. And this went back and forth among the team um, about whether or not you would uh, call down to the lower mainland to transfer her at this time.
1: Where is she on Vancouver Island? Huh?
3: I believe she was in Campbell River.
1: Oof, yikes. <laughs> I mean, Campbell River is a lovely place, um, but I think if I had like multi-organ failure, I'd might be hoping to go, not necessarily to the lower mainland, but at least to Victoria or Nanaimo. It's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty small place to be dealing with a big matzo ball like this. <laughs> <laughs> as,
0: as, matzo balls go, yeah, yeah. as matzo balls go, it's a pretty big
2: one. It, your son is yeah. not Farley, it's Farful. <laughs>
3: oh.
0: So, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, she
3: was... She was transferred to the Lower Mainland. Um, There was discussions with internal medicine and nephrology, Um, and so she was transferred to VGH, and that's where I met her. So she gets referred to a number of subspecialists right out of the gate, um, as as one does when one arrives at VGH. Um, So nephrology was involved for the renal biopsy, um, and they suggested that uh, the differential remained broad and included a number of GNs. And then cardio was also involved. Um, and they summarized the case as follows. So they said it was unlikely a cardiorenal um, syndrome leading to her renal impairment, although her they also found her in her elevation in the NT BNP to be interesting, as it was quite discordant from her clinical exam. they surmised that this was due to her poor renal function. It was trending down slightly. I believe a repeat went from like fifty four thousand to forty three thousand. They did not attribute her renal impairment entirely to poor cardiac output. Um, and they would have suspected that her EF would be more severely reduced leading to this level of uh, renal injury, although I will say her creatinine remained in the mid to high 300s at this time. Mm. They didn't suspect any infiltrative disease. There was low suspicion for ischemic disease, no wall motion abnormalities in the recent negative workup. And they actually said that there was a low utility for a cardiac biopsy because of the lack of focal cardiac MRI findings. They suggested a possibility that this could be related to Sjogren's or a syndrome. But they would do a coronary angiogram to rule out any obstructive disease. And uh, cath was done a few days later, which showed very minor, non-obstructive coronary artery disease.
0: Can I, can I just ask for a tiny bit of clarification there? So they said this could be related to Sjogren's, like they're talking about like the, the cardiac disease?
3: So this is around this time. Everyone is just saying that they thought all of her disease process could be related to Sjogren's versus a paraneoplastic syndrome.
0: I mean, isn't that kind of always the way that, like, for multi-organ <laughs> types of diseases, you could always, you know, draw the circle around everything. You could make it fit. And I, I'm actually not saying that is not that. That that has kind of been what what I've been working on while well, uh, Barry and Steph have actually been trying to solve the case. But okay, I mean, like, I, I'm still curious about the mechanism of the heart failure. And how that ties kind of directly into Sjogren's per se. I'm not seeing it, but that doesn't mean it's not a real thing. I, I think everyone's kind of like said the same thing, which is like, Jesus, BMP is awfully high. Like, what, can we like just a quick review of like the list of things that cause a enormous BMP, <laughs> like, BMP, like it, like back to like embolism is a possibility. Like I'm, I still find that, like, we have not interrogated that aspect of it. Renal failure could bump it up. Heart failure, we've kind of talked about.
1: I guess I I wonder, I I mean, her credit is 400. Like, could (laughs) could this just be, you know, BNP just building up? (laughs) Like, is this all just related to a kidney injury? Like, are are we even measuring heart failure at this point? The the numbers are are relatively mild. Um, I'm not saying she doesn't have heart failure. Like, she's got some LV dysfunction, but the... The workup is pretty normal. Yeah. Um, she's got some idiopathic thing that is lowering her LV function. But, it, you know, I, I, it seems unlikely to be the core phenomenon. I think it's an epiphenomenon. I think there's something that's doing that. And that's the thing that may be also screwing up her kidneys and her lungs. I don't know.
0: Fair, fair enough. That, that makes good sense. All right. So I, I kind of think that we need a little bit of tissue from somewhere. Um <laughs> I think I would probably look at that uh, renal biopsy. Did did, yeah, they, or the lungs. did they go ahead of it? Yeah, totally. So I think a bronch would be very reasonable to like to kinda of solve that one. She's or not that sick, you
1: can little. go in there, you could wash some stuff. Um, you know, this is the, the the Goldilocks zone where you can actually get a bronch, you know, she's not too hypoxemic and she's sick enough and, and it's a diseased tissue. I don't know, I'd be curious.
0: Totally. Was was the team at VGH similarly curious?
3: You know, it's interesting. The team was very kid- curious about her kidney disease, but did not uh, postulate uh, respirology involvement at this time. Uh, but she did get a kidney biopsy, uh, which ended up showing, as it always does, more than one pathology. So it showed acute and chronic thrombotic microangiopathy and acute interstitial nephritis. Oh.
1: Boo. <laughs>
0: Acute interstitial in the phrase, thrombotic microangiopathy.
1: Okay. So the the AIN is not that surprising, I suppose, <laughs> with the doxycycline, maybe. But the microvascular sort of thrombotic microangiopathy—that's hmm, that's surprising.
2: Oh, Did they, do you do any that. stains for uh, for fungal elements in those uh, in the renal biopsy?
3: Let me look. I don't. If there were any stains done, they were negative, but. Let me double mm-hmm.
1: check. Sounds like it was not on anyone's radar at that time.
3: It wasn't. You'd have no. to ask
1: for something like that, kind of special.
3: Yeah, I don't. I don't see that it was done. Hmm. So
0: how does how does this adjust things for us in terms of like infection? It's perineoplastic. It's cancer related. It's Sjogren's related. It's a fourth thing that we haven't thought about. How does thrombotic microangiopathy in the kidneys adjust the likelihoods uh, for you
1: Hmm. To me, it's another thing, another path to walk down a little bit. Like I'd be thinking about, you know, do we have evidence of microangiopathy elsewhere? You know, have we seen hemolysis anywhere else? Or and and then I would be thinking about, you know, understanding a good differential diagnosis of the causes of of renal of that renal finding, and whether that maps onto any of the other things that we've seen.
2: Yeah, I think that I would support what um, what Stefan said. I think Stefan's initial observation was she deteriorated in hospital. What about acute interstitial nephritis related to medication? And I think that's that's how I would look at this. This is possible. The idea of Sjogren's and its related problems with the kidneys, I would consider. But I guess to me, this doesn't change the needle at all, and that was my concern that when we were doing this that it really doesn't change the her presenting problems are cardiopulmonary our anxiety is more renal and she and I, I think that her investigation should be more cardiopulmonary, and we've done a lot of cardiac finding uh, investigations, and I would have suge- I would suggest that pulmonary would be the place to go
1: mm, same
0: cool. I agree. I, I think like you would like, when you would get that result, I think I would sit down, look up if like, look up, okay, differential for thrombotic microangiopathy, obviously, like I would need a refresher. And then I would think about is there a potential relationship to the diseases she already has or the differential we've already come up with. And yes, like that, like that is a rare component of connective tissue disease. And the irritating way that they overlap, I would consider like, okay, well, like, it would be important to check the common diseases associated with microangiopathy and connective tissue disease. I would check antiphospholipids um, as part of like the Shogun's overlappy syndrome. But as far as like its relationship to SLL, well outside of my personal area, I'd have to look that up. And, um, you know, infection has been on our list all along. Um and I'd look up, is there a particular infection that we haven't looked for that we we really need to think about
1: i have I have in my mind this is just like an echo from a long distant uh case, but there's this when when these indolent lymphomas they can transform right like you can get this thing called Richter's transformation or something when when they suddenly become acute, you can get like either an acute lymphoma or an acute leukemia from these indolent lymphomas i I'm saying that only because I don't think that's what's going on here actually like it like, like why why not why what points away from that for you because the adenopathy in the chest was not much worse, right it had not changed. she does not present with B symptoms like I've seen that this this thing happen only a couple of times, and this again, this is like not for years, but the person looked like crap when they came in, like they looked like they were on fire, basically they looked like they had like an acute lymphoma and and so I could imagine at some point maybe a hematologist got their hands on this person, but I just don't think, you know, of all the places to go and get tissue, like that's not a place that I'm particularly interested in. I, I'm reiterating here that I think the lungs are, I agree with Barry, I think the lungs are where this is at.
2: And there, there is another consideration, and I don't, I'd, it's been so long, and I'd have to also review it, but alveolar proteinosis in patients who have underlying lymphoma, and it's especially mm-hmm. activation when we're looking for a non-infective cause. I mean, I think this is just more reason to go ahead and look at the lungs. But I really, mm-hmm. if I had to think about things, I think I think this suggests to me more, I'm going to stick my neck out and say, I think this is a fungal infection and that the microangiopathy is part of the, uh, the fungemia. And that the origin is from the lungs and that this is related to Vancouver Island.
0: And this is Vancouver Island's fault. Perry Casson. in the library <laughs> with a candlestick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So let, let's uh, let's uh, turn back over to Natanya. So what, uh, what kind of proceeded next in hospital?
3: So the team actually called hematology next uh, because of the TMA on the biopsy. So uh, hematology weighed in. They said, uh, just like other people had, that the light chain elevation was suspected from the renal failure, no pair protein. She had antiphospholipid antibodies, which were negative, as well as uh, the lupus serology, which we talked about. Um, A a workup was sent for complement-mediated TMA, which was pending at this time. And they said a bone marrow biopsy would probably not be helpful because it would just show her known malignancy. They actually sent additionally a, a hemolytic workup Um, The blood film just showed lymphocytosis with smudge shells consistent with her known malignancy. Ferritin was 700, haptoglobin was normal, LDH was 200, and bilirubin was normal. And they thought actually that the TMA uh, for her renal disease was a possible perineoplastic process from her malignancy. They actually said that Plex probably wouldn't be that helpful given that there's been ongoing progressive decline in her renal function. But they did order a PET scan and they said they would follow along.
1: I don't understand that at all. I mean, what are you you saying? Like, you're saying, oh, her her lymphoma is stable. And on what basis are they saying that this thing is a perineoplastic syndrome?
0: But also that it wouldn't respond to treatment. This is silly. If you treated it. I I, I am also confused because it seems like, well, okay, for broadly speaking, I don't know about this one in particular, broadly speaking, perineoplastic syndromes require treatment of the thingy and treatment of the underlying cause. And you have to walk and chew gum at the same time, but you must treat the underlying cause. Otherwise mm-hmm. and thrombotic microangiopathies, you know, listeners have probably already surmised this, not great for you. Mm-hmm. So you actually need to treat it. And so if there's if if their pitch is that it's it's a perineoplastic syndrome, then implied by that is that it requires treatment of the underlying disease. And if that's what they're implying, then I think that's like a heme to heme onc battle uh over like who's who's right or how can they prove it because like well all right well so so you've you've kind of given a diagnosis and a label and uh and ghosted us i would be i i think i think i would require a little bit more explanation of of that kind of overall plan because the person sounds like they're doing poorly um big picture if that's the diagnosis
3: Yeah. So her renal function continues to decline and the team is also scratching their head and she continues to develop intermittent hypoxia, Uh Um, looks to be more in volume overload, has decreasing urine output. She wasn't responding to Lasix and she actually gets started on dialysis around this time. And because of this, she gets, after she gets dialyzed, she gets a repeat CT chest, uh, which basically shows that there's been improvement in her pulmonary edema, but there is still mild interlobular septal thickening in keeping with mild residual interstitial pulmonary edema. Uh, There was also a lower lung predominant uh, reticulation with superimposed ground glass raising concern for NSIP pattern. They actually said in the report it could be consistent with Sjogren's disease. And there were multiple peripheral micronodurals bilaterally raising concern for bronchiolitis and some mild air trapping in keeping with uh, small airway disease there was an uh, enlarged thyroid lo- lobe and no changes to lymphadenopathy. She had a follow-up thyroid ultrasound, which was fairly unremarkable.
0: I was going to say, get out of
1: here, thyroid. <laughs> You're not welcome yeah. in this
0: <laughs> case. <laughs> the team go down way. that pathway, so I would <laughs> tell you about it. Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. And, thank then, you. and then <laughs> they called Endo. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and
0: Endo uh. said it was a perineoplastic thyroid, <laughs> and uh, they'll see them in a year.
2: <laughs> i don't like okay. this
1: we're gonna miss our window where we can bronc this lady if she gets sicker and more hypoxic we're gonna miss it i don't like we're this. missing it
0: totally um okay i, I e- this is an easy one i really do think a respirologist needs to be involved and i would absolutely ask them to consider a bronch, um if i hadn't already any any disagreements with that barry no it's so they, they came have...
3: by they eventually did come around this time and they attributed all of her, all of her pulmonary, all of her uh, pulmonary symptoms to pulmonary edema, and there was no discussion of bronching her. So she Get just got diarrheased and dialyzed. I'm not kidding.
0: Get out of here. Yeah, and,
3: sorry and, and everyone.
0: A reminder to all listeners that like we were not there. We are hearing the story yeah. after the fact. You know, we are not doing this podcast to criticize people who are involved in the case. So we are, (laughs) yeah, I know. That's why Barry's here, but the rest of us are not here to do that. But that seems sort of like missing the forest for the trees a little bit. Like, also, I I, like importantly, as you said, her last CTILD that she had had like a year or two or four ago, there was interlobular septal thickening. And so I, I would just like, are you sure? They did say in this report that it's probably residual pulmonary edema. Are you sure? Or is it a very similar distribution to what they had, you know, a, a year or two ago? Because I'm suspicious that it's not all pulmonary edema. It's probably a mixed picture, but uh, I don't buy that. What do you guys think? I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy. Not not like generally. I mean, just in this case. <laughs> Same. Yeah. <laughs> So, I think I,
1: call I feel like I, I'm, at, yeah, I'm at a bit of an impasse here. Like we have no—I don't know. Maybe I just passed out here for a second, but we have no idea what's going on. Like and no everyone's... one, no one has a good explanation for what the hell is happening here.
0: Right. It's not right. great. It's not. I mean, awesome. we, she could
1: have been in the same position in Campbell River.
0: Actually, yeah, they were. They were getting more done. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay. I, I'm, I'm actually really interested. Like, so, so how did general internal actually, like, what was their approach to this kind of politically? Like, how did they move through this where everyone said, like, not me and, or sure. Like we kind of know what it is, but we're not going to do the next step. And, and you're stuck with this patient where you're like, oh, okay, well then I guess they just, then I guess they're perfectly healthy, right? Like they can so, go home.
1: Yeah. I mean, is, US, is, if, if I'm the, if I'm the attending here, I, what I imagine was probably happening was, like, you're trying to uh, quarterback between, I guess at this point, Room and Heem. I don't know. No one else seems to be into it. But the team that I want is Resp or ID, you know. Jeez, this sucks. Like, this sucks. Because everyone, like, everyone except Room seems to think it's the Shogrins. Everyone except Heem seems to think that it's the SLL uh, acting up. Um, or or he even thinks it is the SLL and doesn't want to do anything. Like, God, I I don't know. I'm, at this point, I'd feel like I'm in a bit of a bind. I'd call Barry.
3: Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah I, I'd call <laughs> you guys and I'd be like, please help me. <laughs> hey,
3: mother? So actually, we haven't mentioned what rheumatology said yet. Although I I feel um, funny about it because Dr. Ennis is here. But uh, rheumatology was consulted. And they, as rheumatologists do, it was actually me on the rheumatology rotation. That's when I met her. You know, we got additional history, uh, which we were all looking for earlier. So um, she basically said that she'd been very fatigued and had Raynaud's phenomenon and non-inflammatory joint pain. She had had new hypertension in the last few months before she came in. She'd lost about 30 30 pounds in the last six months before she came in. And she'd have worsening dry eyes and dry mouth over the summer. That corresponded over the same time frame when her dyspnea was worsening. And she previously hadn't really made much of her Sjogren's symptoms, but all of a sudden she was having to use over-the-counter products for eye drops and mouthwash. Uh, she didn't have any other salivary gland swelling, any alopecia, oh. paresthesias, anything else really on a full room review of systems. And so uh, the rheumatology staff essentially said that the Sjogren's could possibly be the cause of the AIN, but it was very unlikely to be the primary driver of her renal failure. Um, and they actually suspected that the thrombotic mic- micropath uh, microangiopathy uh, was due to again the paraneoplastic process from uh, her lymphoma, <laughs> and so they said, "Please follow up on the PET scan, and we'll get a bilateral salivary gland ultrasound, um, ultrasound to see if this is indeed Sjogren's."
0: You know, oh, confirming classic, not it, yeah, confirming that it Sjogren's is legit, right? Because you're like, okay, well now it really matters. Now it's not just like. Kind of, you know, to put a label on it as opposed to saying, oh, it's a mix, sorry, it's an undifferentiated connective tissue disease of some kind um, or Sjogren's or whatever, like, which, which, like, I, I'm, I'm kind of making fun of it, but like, as I said, to, to diagnose it as Sjogren's when someone's primary symptoms is dryness is only important for the uh, increased risk of lymphoma. It doesn't change management. But now it really matters that it's truly like, Sjogren's, as opposed to a different cause for dry eyes, dry mouth, which could include all sorts of things, including malignancy. So I, I don't think there's anything crazy about like getting the ultrasounds. That's not like a tool we use with great frequency. Um, so sometimes they'll say like there's heterogen- heterogeneous um, looking parotid glands that can be, that are in keeping with Sjogren's. But then you're like, eh, Okay may actually just need a lip biopsy to prove for realsies that it's, it's, it's Sjogren's. So ultrasound is like an evolving um, test. It is useful, but doesn't always tell you what you want. But here, a non-invasive way of kind of trying to solidify the prior clinical diagnosis. I'm not sure that like I'm hearing a, a truly convincing story that this is definitively perineoplastic um, because it would be a rare version of that And it would be a rare complication of a connective tissue disease as well. So it's kind of rare versus rare. And um, I'm not sure I've I've heard a a clear tiebreaker there.
3: The team did exactly what you had described. So they got the ultrasound, which had the similar findings that you described. So they did get a biopsy, um, which was in keeping with a diagnosis of Sjogren's. And so everyone came back to the table together uh, in order to discuss. So it was actually hematology, rheumatology and internal medicine. And the consensus was that the AIN very well could be from the Shogrin. She was started on um, prednisone, but that the primary driver was probably the TMA. And after uh, much deliberation and interestingly, a stable PET scan from her prior, um, the hematology team started to teach her on, on chemotherapy uh, for her SLL uh, to treat the TMA.
0: Interesting.
1: Well, at least something's happening.
0: Yes, I don't, so think kind a, of is, both. I don't think this is.
1: I don't think this is going to go well, but I think at least something's happening. Like someone is generating and testing a a hypothesis, which is good. Totally,
0: and oh, okay, all right. So we have we have some movement there. Um, how does she respond to that treatment?
3: So this is it's really interesting, and one of the reasons this case has stuck with me is because she unfortunately never got her renal function back, uh, despite remaining on the chemotherapy. Um, and she, you know, tapered off of the steroids and just has remained dialysis dependent. Um, and what's really interesting is <laughs> you're going to find this very unsatisfying. This is sort of where the case pauses and she gets transferred back to the island and she gets her outpatient follow up. And the working diagnosis of her renal disease is the TMA from her SLL and AIN from Sjogren's.
0: So, so both.
3: Yeah.
1: Interesting. And, and
0: what just, I, I think, thought
3: was really interesting is there's really no firm diagnosis on her heart failure and heart disease.
1: Can you imagine being the receiving doctor in Campbell river? <laughs> I, I would do an eye roll so big. My
0: eyes got stuck that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I think that like, that's really, that's really tough. And like, you know, again, truly not, not trying to dunk on or disagree with um, the people taking care of her. I'm sure like, you spent lots of time thinking about all of this stuff. And sometimes cases do end where you're like, wait, tell me, like, which test am I supposed to do that proves that TMA is the SLL or the Sjogren's? Like, is there such a test? Um, and if you can't do it, then you kind of just have to, tr- you, you hit a treatment threshold. And in this case, both rheumatology and Hemonc hit treatment thresholds. It, of course, leaves us with a little bit of a bitter taste because we, we want more and we can't always get it. I still, you know, I'm still a little bit more curious about the lung now that we know 100% she has Sjogren's. I'm even more curious what her actual interstitial lung disease is, um, and what else is at play there. Anyways, I yes, not perfectly satisfying, but a really, really interesting story and a lot for us to work through. What do you guys think? What are your takeaways?
1: Um. I hope that a, I mean, I hope that a lung specialist is going to see her on the island at some point. I, You know, we're just committing her to a long, long course of chemotherapy, presumably, and how one would even decide when to stop that is not clear to me. You know, like, uh, boy, oh boy, this is a real, it, this is a real conundrum. Um, and I, and I know yeah, I I totally just want to reiterate what Danny is saying. Like, we're not dunking on whoever was taking care of this lady. This is a mess. And, and I've been involved in messes like this and, and it's, it feels bad and, and I'm doing my best and nothing's going anywhere. And and so I, I I feel empathy for obviously this poor patient and, and for all the people who have had to, you know, wake up at night sweating, wondering what's wrong with her.
2: I think what I would say is that I was wrong. Um, I, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I think that I probably am wrong because if her immunosuppression uh, shouldn't have improved her, if she had an underlying infection, then uh, I think we would have made things a lot worse, not better. So I think I'd still have the, I mean, I I can't disagree with that she has Sjogren's, but Sjogren's by itself may still not be the only answer. I think it's unlikely that she has an infection. And I guess the uh, treatment of her lymphoma is something I'm not sure about, but certainly I guess this would be secondary Sjogren's, correct, Danny? Not primary,
0: um, unless she had a, a a different underlying cause for the Sjogren's. I think this one we would probably label as primary.
2: So she's are you, are you saying
0: it's related to the SLL?
2: Well, that that's the thought I had, but maybe I don't know. Maybe it's not a distinction, but um, if if she didn't have that, and primary Sjogren's would have would have fit. But in any case, yeah. I guess as I say I I would have how, how many months uh, Natanya how, how many months out is she now from her discharge
3: So it's now been about maybe 4 months since her discharge and this case I was really scratching my head about this very unsatisfying ending especially all the kind of loose ends that had been not, not had been t- had not been tied up So um I actually when I reached out to the patient to um, have her allow me to talk about her on the podcast she actually told me that there had been something new that had happened Um, So she had been having follow up with the heart function clinic and no one really, again, had a clear cause for her heart failure. And she had remained on her chemotherapy with hematology. Her renal function, unfortunately, had um, not improved again, dialysis dependent. But she had developed some diarrhea intermittently, which had initially been attributed to her chemo. uh, But then she started having severe abdominal pain. and She actually went to the emergency department. This is not too long ago. And she had a repeat uh, CT abdomen and pelvis, uh, which showed uh, persistent retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy with interval increase in the left peri and and aortocable lymph nodes with new peritoneal and omental nodules with a large conglomeration within the left lower quadrant, layering adjacent to the descending colon, all in keeping with peritoneal carcinomatosis. And there is a larger focus of peritoneal deposit that was amenable to biopsy. There was a moderate amount of free fluid. Again, that's new from prior. And there was a new endometrial thickening corresponding. She actually had an an abdominal uh, pelvic ultrasound, I'm sorry, like six months before this whole thing started that showed some very mild endometrial thickening. And this was persistent and uh, progressive from prior in keeping with endometrial hyperplasia slash malignancy. And so, yeah, that was the new finding.
1: Was it biopsied?
3: So it was biopsied, but it was just biopsied a few days ago. And so we don't have the answer, but for me it really made me remember when I worked with worked with Steph in clinic and how many times you said that this is like a test of time mm. is one of the best tests that maybe there's something that we didn't know and that's why it's so unsatisfying. I'll well, say it. I'll say
1: it here again, Barry. This is for your benefit. What I tell residents: the the actual mm. quote is the the three the two best doctors in the world are time <laughs> are time and Google, and <laughs> yeah. and the third best is Barry Gasman. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you for that. I don't think I did so well in this, but but I think that uh it's it's hard to believe. It's hard to think that she's got lymphoma in her uterus and uh and we're treating her for lymphoma and, and it it's become more aggressive. So somehow it doesn't all hang together. Natalia, can,
1: she, can she just have endometrial cancer?
3: I will let you know. Yeah, that's what the team is wondering. So her specialists at BC Cancer are actually wondering if she um unclear the chronicity. like was it the whole time or is this new? That she truly is very unlucky, as you have described. That she probably has a gynecological malignancy. Um, so biopsy of the omental lesion was taken, and also um, a paracentesis for cytology that is pending. Wow. Yeah,
2: it's uh, it's it's really interesting. The, uh, the the especially this diarrhea. So does she have implants? Did, did, did anyone look in her colon? Does she have ischemic areas in her colon?
3: The scan was not a contrast scan, and. Uh, as far as I can recall. She just had diverticular disease, but there was no like signs of colitis or um, inflammation there. And um, I don't believe she was having any Molina stools or bright red blood rectum either. It,
2: okay. But it's just because, you know, yeah. she has this progression uh, in, with the microvascular disease. It's possible that that whatever is happening is just continuing to barrel on and giving her microvascular disease of her bowel now and perineal involvement. So Please let us know. It's. I hope it's not an infection.
1: If if she gets diagnosed with cryptococcal endometritis, please let Barry know immediately. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right away. I will let
3: you know.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, thank you, Natanya. Well,
0: Natanya, thank you so much. That's a really interesting case, and uh, thanks to you, gentlemen. Nice to nice to talk with everyone. Thanks, Natanya.
2: Hey, thanks, Danny. Thank you, yep, Natanya.
0: All right. Bye, everyone.